This morning we are going to be journeying with Paul further as he is there in the city of Ephesus as we walked through so much of that last week and continuing in Acts chapter 19. And this morning we're going to encounter a, a goddess known as Artemis of the Ephesians. And um, just maybe a little poll of the audience if you've ever wondered, like, well, maybe you're wondering today, like, what connection will I ever have with someone that lived 2,000 years ago who worshipped some little statue or um, had all these, these people that worshipped them? Like, what connection do I have? So maybe you're wondering that. Um, so maybe just a quick poll of the audience might just show us that maybe we have more connections than we think. How many of you, maybe you personally or someone you know that's at some point in their life had some kind of fertility issue, had trouble having children? Anybody personally or someone you know? Yeah, absolutely. How many here maybe this morning, um, maybe you're hunters, and um, man, as hunters, you absolutely would love like to have that spot, like right, that spot up in that stand, or like if you could just get to that pond, and if you could just have that kill, right, like that, whatever that is, you could go after some big wild game, how many of you would be interested as hunters? You'd just be like, hey, I'd be in on that, right, raise some hands, right, some of you, yeah, absolutely. Maybe there's here some of you, or maybe somebody you know, that has like some fears or concerns about death. How many of you here, maybe you just got some fears and concerns with somebody you know, right? You have some fears? You have fears? I got some fears and concerns. I'll be honest about death, right? It's something that's kind of like, ugh, I'm concerned. There's some questions about that. So the reality is, whether you know it or not, is it actually this goddess Artemis, um, the Romans, in their religion they call her Diana, um, but she actually could do all those things for you. So if you have fertility issues, guess where you would have go today if you were in Ephesus? You would go and you would worship the goddess Artemis, and hopefully she could help out with fertility. Right? If you are a hunter and a bower, and so maybe you were involved with us in war or just seeking some game, if you needed help in that, guess who you would go to? You would go to the goddess Artemis. And maybe you're here today and you're concerned, you have some worries about death or some of that, guess where else you might show up today? You're catching on. The goddess Artemis, right? She is the goddess of death. So we have this goddess here who's goddess of fertility, goddess of the bow and arrow, goddess of death. And these people absolutely clamor for her. And, and so maybe you're already starting to see it because you're wondering, well, again, I, I don't catch. Why, could, why would people ever worship some kind of little statue? Like, why are they so upset about that? The thing to remember is this. The gods that they worshipped, the little statues, were always a means to an end. It was never necessarily about that little statue, right? We see that and we think it's so foreign to us. But if you think about it just for a moment and begin to realize what they're after, you're going to see that you have a lot of connections. Because the reality is they're not necessarily after the little statue they have in their house or wherever. They're after what that statue can do. Can that statue provide money or power or deliver from death or, or provide children? Or maybe like with Baal so often, I mean, he, he was the god of war and he also in charge of maybe as farmers, you need rain for your crops or you need a good harvest this year, then you would have to go to this certain goddess or god and that's who you would pray to and cry out to. That was always what was happening in the culture. We do the same things. Except we don't have the little statues or most of us probably don't have little statues on our shelves. But what we do have is the idols that are in our hearts and minds that no one can see. And they give us the very same motive. We want that money. We want the fame. We want the power. We want the sex. We want whatever it is that we are after to rank up above everybody else. Whatever we're after. So we keep our idols hidden. We keep them concealed in our hearts and minds. But they very much drive us. So today as we come to Acts 19, I don't want you to see this and think, well, 2,000 years ago that has no connection. No, it has absolute connection to us. And I want you to see what happens when the gospel shows up there. 
Because what the gospel does in Ephesus today, some almost 2,000 years ago, is the same thing that's going to happen in your heart and life when the gospel shows up today. It's going to attack your idols. The gospel has a way, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the word of God, this word, it says it is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will penetrate, and it will divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and it will judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This word will reveal the motives of your and my heart today, and that's exactly what happens here in Ephesus as Paul has come preaching and teaching the gospel. So let's look to it today when the gospel confronts idolatry. The first thing we know about idols, you're going to see today, we're going to kind of look at the text. We're going to know this about idols. Idols meet our needs, right? They meet our needs. Some great need that you have, that's what idols so often do. That's why they're so enticing. Look with me, Wood, verse 25 of Acts 19. Build the context just for a moment. Remember that um, Paul had been doing these works. We had uh, the Jewish exorcist. The demon came on the scene and beat them. They ran out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, the people came confessing. Even they were, they were burning their books. And, and we had all this great work. And it says the church was growing. And verse 21 comes and says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. All right, the way, um, obviously Jesus himself calls himself the way, John 14 and 6. Um, this word can literally mean the, the highway, it can mean road, or the way to eternal life. And so this was a way that Christians were becoming defined. Followers of Christ were saying they were followers of the way. And now it's created a disturbance. So watch this. This is where the text begins to pick up momentum and leaps forward. Verse 24. We encounter a man whose name is Demetrius. Alright? He's a silversmith. Alright? And here, here's what he does. He makes sil silver shrines of Artemis. Alright? And he says, this, guess what? This brings no little business to the craftsman. Alright? This, this was a profitable business. And then look what happens here. It says that in response to the way and all the things that are happening there in Ephesus, he gathers together with the workmen in similar trades and says to them, Men, you know that from this business, right? The making of these silver shrines, right? These, these shrines that people would take home or maybe there's little objects they would take in the temple and they would sit there before Artemis praying that she would maybe do what they're asking to do. But this was, he says, listen, it's by this business and here's where it begins to clue us in about idols. It's from this business that we have our wealth. So now we're beginning to clue in why is Demetrius and the people in Ephesus so upset? It's not necessarily just simply about Artemis or Diana, right? It's not so simply about who she is and how great. This is where their money comes from. Like Jesus has shown up on the scene now and he's messing with your pocketbook, right? I mean, he's like saying, hey, I'm, I'm compelling you to begin to give to the church. I'm calling you to adopt or I'm calling you to begin sponsoring this ministry. I'm calling you and you're like, hey, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for you like to start messing with my pocketbook. And not only God's calling you to do stuff, he's starting to reveal your heart. Right? Jesus says that no one can serve two masters for the love one and hate the other, right? He says no one can serve both God and money. And so God begins to do a work here. And so we often see that, right? That what happens with our idols is, is they begin to say they, they provide something. They meet a need that we long for, a desire that you and I have. Those idols begin to meet those. And we, we seek after them. 
And that's why it's so often confusing, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever been around when somebody like seemed to like blow up over nothing? You ever had those moments like where they're like, why did they flip out over that? Like, what's up? It's smoke and mirrors often. It's not necessarily the situation. What you're beginning to see is you're messing with an idol for some reason in their life. And what's going to happen here is what happens when the gospel and the good news about Jesus confronts our hearts and lives. When people mess with things that we love and care about, our own little idols that we've tried to conceal and hide, we can get tenacious in response. That's what happens. So the second thing we're going to see from the text is this. Idols are fragile and they have to be protected. Idols are fragile. They have to be protected. I mean, when we're beginning to get honest about the idols in our life, we have to do a lot of protecting for them. Some of you, the things that you really value, you have to do a lot of secrecy. You have to do a lot of sleight of hand. You have to go places maybe incognito or people don't know or late at night or travel far distances. I mean, you have to do a lot of things to protect that idol, maybe keep it concealed that nobody knows. You have to beat your spouse in the mailbox. You have to check the... I mean, you, you are constantly trying to keep that charade up. That's because idols are fragile and they have to be protected. Listen to what happens here. This is an image there of Artemis. Um, and the other day, yesterday I was literally looking through this and Josiah happened to walk up and he looks at it and he's like, Daddy, what is all those beads and stuff on that lady's chest? And I'm like, well, I mean, right, right, I mean those are fertility eggs, right? That's what that's about. Um, that's the reason why you're seeing those. And so I was kind of like, how did I respond? And I was like, well, buddy, uh, that's an idol. And he looks over to you and he's like, Idols are bad, um, they are sinful, and we don't worship those. We only worship God. And I was like, brother, that's it. Hopefully people can catch that tomorrow, and we will be awesome. Um, and, and listen, oftentimes it's really cool kids. Uh, brother Todd and I got a chance to talk to a seven-year-old this past week here in the church. And, and he said, hey, listen, Brother Blake, I remember that, that just a few weeks ago you were preaching and teaching. And you said that, guess what? God may not heal people necessarily like he, all, like he did back in, in the Bible times, like those instantaneous things. But I know that God still heals. And I was like, dude, that's the whole thing I was trying to preach in like one sentence. Maybe he needs to come and preach more, right? Like you're with me, right? You feeling it? So look what it says here, though. Verse 26, Acts 19. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, and this is, this is, this is important. Here's what Paul says, all right? Paul says this, that gods made with hands are not what? They're not gods. Now, interesting, scholars are debating this, and we're not necessarily certain, but this could literally be what Paul was actually saying. Like, this is a quote from Paul. That Paul went around saying, hey, gods that are made with hands are not gods. And I don't know about you, but that is really, really offensive here. And I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when I've heard people say things like, hey, listen, God's word condemns this lifestyle and that's a lifestyle of me. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to hear that. Like, I mean, we begin to respond. We revolt at it. Paul says, listen, any God that's a little g God is actually not God at all. Don't be fooled by that. Don't be don't 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 miss it. And so, interestingly enough, uh, this, in our reading this past week here, um, in the Bible plan I'm on, it came to Psalm 135. Listen to what it says. Verse 15 of Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And then this statement, verse 18 of Psalm 135. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust Him. Whether you realize it or not, you're becoming more like your idol every single moment. That should be terrifying. 
It's a terrifying feeling. And Paul says, listen guys, gods that are made with, with human hands are actually not gods at all. No, don't forget the place that this is happening. In verse 10, we heard that Paul stayed there for many years. And it says that the whole region of Asia began to hear the word of the Lord. So their corporate strategy, they're having the minds poisoned. Don't even forget the power, though. Back in verse 11, we heard about these extraordinary miracles were being done by Paul. It said that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were going out and healing people. I don't know about you, but can you imagine, like, if imagine a day that you, you, you've got, like, a fast food restaurant. And, like, in every, like, happy meal, you hand out a toy. But, like, the people across the street, guess what they're doing in their, in their fast food restaurant. They're healing the kids that come through. Like, how do you compete with that, right? That's what's happening. Artemis is actually being challenged. Is she for real? Is she legit? I mean, there's some other God whose person, his name is Jesus, and he's so great that, like, he's healing people. And this dude's not even present. There's people claiming that his spirit is so great and so mighty that it actually lives in them, and it's doing a work. And this guy, he, listen, he, he, was, he was crucified on the cross. The Romans killed him. We know that. Romans, don't, they don't miss out on crucifixion. And they buried him. And they're claiming that he rose again and he's in heaven and he's actually the one true God and no one else is. And his spirit is at work and people are being healed. Demons are being cast out. People are being set free. Man, it is a real challenge. So can you imagine this? Imagine this right now for Demetrius and the silversmiths and for everybody else that lives in Ephesus. If, this, if Jesus wins, if Jesus triumphs in this moment, and really it's true that these little gods, these gods made with human hands like Artemis here, aren't actually gods, then imagine what it means for Demetrius and for the silversmith and everybody in Ephesus. Their idols are gone. Their temple, which we're going to see in a minute, Uh, Their temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It's gone. Why? Because everybody came there for that. Everybody depended upon the goddess Artemis. Their culture, it's gone. Can you imagine maybe today Jesus is calling you away from your idols? It's going to cost you that idol or idols. It's going to cost you Maybe something that you've really poured a lot of time into. It's your temples and the things that you've built and God's calling you away from those. It may call you out of the culture and the community and the people that you've often run with and hang with and you've been so connected with, but you know that the the Word of God says that bad company corrupts good character. You see, Jesus is a great cost. He calls us out and away from that way of life into a life of freedom and peace. And so I wonder today... Are you weary of trying to protect your idols and your little gods? Have you become exhausted by trying to keep up your way of life, your fortune, to portray that certain image? Because idols have to be protected. But I'm going to let you know in a few moments about the true God. He doesn't have to be protected. Look at me thirdly here. Idols move and stir our emotions. Idols move and stir our emotions. They reveal our true heart's Desire. Look what happens here, verse 28 through 34. It says, When they heard this, they were enraged and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city's filled with confusion. They rushed together in the theater. We're going to see it in a minute. They dragged with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But the, Paul wished to go in among the crowd. The disciples, they're not going to let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, they, they went forth and they were friends of his. and. They sent to him and they urged him, listen, don't come into here. Don't come in. 
Now, some people were crying out one thing, some another. The assembly was in confusion. Listen, this is interesting. Most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they began crying out with one voice, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours crying out. This amphitheater is massive. Um, and that's a present-day picture. It holds somewhere roughly to twenty to 25,000 people. So can you imagine an ancient day and time to walk in and see a structure like this? This is where this is happening. right? So you can imagine if there's some little obscure person down here on the stage, why it would be so? you would be walking in here saying, why is everybody so upset? Who is that down there? Why is everybody talking? Why, what's going on? Right? So we can begin to see that, realizing as you sit here and look down, imagine what must be happening. But isn't it interesting that people are yelling and screaming? And isn't that often what happens with us? We begin to think that like, if we can yell loud enough and long enough that we can like drown everything else out. We, we think, man, hey, listen, maybe it's kind of like Cinderella's carriage. Like maybe if I can just do this or if I could just maybe work this out, then this will happen, right? And oftentimes we treat God like that genie in the bottle. Like if I, if I could just read enough Bible verses today, if I could just pray enough today, if I can go to church today, if I can give money today, then maybe God will do this. God's not an idol, guys. You can't manipulate Him. You can't deceive Him. God is a God who is gracious and loving and kind and merciful. He's a good Father. He is unlike us. He is not to be manipulated. He just desires your love and devotion. God is gracious and kind. And so listen, the question becomes like, so what happens when you can't make that diagnosis disappear? Like what happens when you and I can't transform the dysfunction in our family? Who then can come along and quiet the screaming, the kicking, the yelling? Who can make that go away? Because often what happens with idols is, is they promise all this on the upfront, But soon we find ourselves like Cinderella sitting on the pumpkin again. We thought for a moment that idol would work. Right? That relationship, that relationship that's going to be the one that satisfies me. And now if we take this relationship to the next step, that's what's now going to satisfy me. Or if I take another drink of that, or if we just go a little bit bigger tonight, a little bit louder, we pop a few more of that, or if we just pursue this, or if I'm after just a little bit more money, a little bit more change, then I'll be happy. That's what often happens with idols. You have this sense that they're going to deliver, they're going to do something, but the promise is they can't fulfill it. They can't bring peace, they can't bring joy. I don't know about you, but maybe you've been there and things didn't go well in your life with your idols or whatever, I become a tyrant when that happens. When things didn't go well on the golf course, man, I, 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 could, I could curse with the best of them. I could slam clubs. I could throw clubs. I could hit my, hit my bag. I could tell my parents, shut up, leave me alone. I mean, I, I could lose it. Tennis court, things weren't going well. I could smack a racket, throw a racket, hit a fence. Basketball court, if it wasn't going well, I could get into it with anybody, everybody. You want to be dirty, I'll be dirty. You want to undercut, I'll undercut. Let's get after it. In the classroom, when the exam would come back and it would say 97, I wasn't excited I got a 97. I was thinking, what? Where's the 100? Where are the other three I missed? Why? Because my identity was so wrapped up in my performance. 
Like that, that was how I was going to be important. That's how people at school were going to appreciate me. Like if I could just excel enough in sports, if I could just do enough academically, then like maybe then like people would say, well, oh man, you've reached it, right? You, you, you're no longer 10th in your class now. You're third in your class. I mean, like at what point? I mean, do you, do you feel that? It just becomes exhausting. But man, when those idols are there and they're real and people mess with that or that, that doesn't go the way you want it to or that shot didn't go the way you wanted or that test didn't go the way you wanted or that business deal didn't go the way you wanted, man, you absolutely flip out and lose it. That's what's happening here in Ephesus. They were trying to ride in the carriage, but the reality is all along it's just been a pumpkin. Most of them don't even know why they're there. There's confusion. The fourth thing here I want to throw out to you is this. This confusion. And this is what often happens with the idols in our lives. We don't understand why others don't get it. Like when it comes to our idols, we're just confused and perplexed. Why don't other people get it? Look what happens here, verse 35 and 36. It says, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? All right, so, hey, listen, he's talking about Artemis here again. And of, look what it says here, the sacred Stone, Ooh, right? Like Harry Potter, I don't know. The sacred stone that fell from the sky. And then look what he says here. This is interesting. Verse 36. Again, we're talking about idols. Why we get so frustrated when other people don't see it. They don't, it doesn't make sense to them. Seeing then that these things, he says, cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. What's believed is, is guess what showed up in Ephesus? A meteorite. It fell from the sky, showed up, and guess what they said? Hey, listen, this is Artemis sending us a sign proving that she's real. And if anybody wants to deny the fact that Artemis is real, we'll show you Exhibit A, this meteorite. Now prove that. No, we want to say, dude, it's a meteorite. It doesn't prove that. I can show you tons of them. We can just look at the app. I mean, are you not? But that's what happens. Right? We, we think we're so convinced that this idol, this way of lifestyle is right, that if anybody messes with it, they just don't get it. Right? When we look at others and we think, man, if you guys just knew how much fun this is, you would leverage your weekends the exact same way we do. Or if you just knew how skilled this person was, then you would understand why I invest so much and we spend so much time and we drive there to either put my kids in that position or put myself in that position. If you just knew... Or if you could only imagine what we're going to do with this money when we get it, then you would know why I work those long hours and I neglect my family time and time again. If you just knew what this was going to bring to our family. You see, those things become so valuable, they're so important. And when people begin to question us, we just simply say this, they don't get it. They just don't get it. They just just don't know, they don't realize, they don't understand. And that's what's so scary about idols. That's the deception. For many of us today, when we read this story, we have no clue that we even are Demetrius. We have no idea that we even relate to him and his friends. Because we don't have the little statue on the stand, and so it doesn't look the same, but the motives of our heart are after things that are just as tangible. We are Demetrius. The motives of our hearts, guys, are after other things other than God. And so often what it takes is a meteorite slamming into our lives. Not a real physical one, but it comes in the form of a diagnosis. It comes in the form of a spouse saying, that's it, I'm out. It's that collection letter in the mail or the phone that keeps ringing and you know that number and what it means and will they come. 
Those things often collide with our lives and they call us out. Zacchaeus was called out of his life, down from the tree, and he met someone who had finally loved him and overcame his idols. And he said, Lord, here, what I have, I give to the poor. Saul of Tarsus on that road, he was, he was set and determined that he was doing the will of God, but in fact, he was contradicting the very Messiah that had come and died for him. But when he encountered Christ, everything changed. It's the work of 1 Corinthians 6 who says, listen, listen, church of Corinth, there's some of you that are sexually immoral. Some of you that are liars and thieves. Some of you that are homosexuals. There are some of you that are, that are greedy and drunkards. I want to warn you that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when I look at that list, guys, I can just start doing check mark, check mark, check mark. So many areas of my life. And then we hear those verses. But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's all I can claim today. That there was a God who washed me despite my my life that contradicted His Word and said that I was in fact not going to be valid for the kingdom of heaven because of my sin and my life. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God and gracious love of Christ overwhelmed my heart and called me out and He washed me, He sanctified me, He justified me, and it's just His great love. So I want to know today, in the church of Greensburg, like the church of Corinth, can some of you today say, and such were some of you, those were my idols. Those things consumed my life. I never ever thought I could go to the golf course and play serious and not gamble. I just I had all these idols, all these things. I was so driven by money and success. Even today I struggle with it. I wonder right now, how are they perceiving me? Do they like me? Are they this is a good sermon? Where are they going to rank it? Does this matter to them? And we all have these things, don't we? We deal with them constantly. So let's look for a moment just at who the true God is. First and foremost, the one true God is not for sale. The true God is not for sale. When those handkerchiefs and those aprons were being passed out by Paul, there was no charge for those. That was just the gracious love of God. In Acts chapter 8, when a man by the name of Simeon tells Peter, Hey, would I, can I give you some silver or gold? Can I give you some money right here real quickly? And you give me the gifts so that when I put my hands on somebody, the Holy Spirit comes. And Peter says... May your money perish with you, for you thought that you could purchase the gift of God. You can't buy God. He's not for sale. God's grace is free. And that's what's so counterintuitive all our lives. We've been taught that idols have to be pleased. That you have to do this or do that to somehow get the idol to do what you want. But that's not who God is. His grace and His love is not deserved. It is freely given. It is a gracious, kind gift that you will never earn, that you will never rank yourself up enough for. So the gospel confronts our idolatry and says, once and for all, there's a God who isn't about what you can do for Him, but in fact, what He's already done for you. This God's not for sale. He's not for deciding how we think He should be or what it means to get into the kingdom of heaven. No, He's already shown us that perfection is the call and none of us made it and therefore He sent forth His Son. God is not for sale. Secondly, this, the one true God, He doesn't need protecting. Look at this. 
Back here in this text. And there's danger, it says, remember this, this is Demetrius speaking to his buddies there, all the other silversmiths and those who made shrines. He says, there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Right? This temple of Artemis counted as nothing. And she may even, he says, be deposed from her magnificence. Now, this temple... We don't have it today, but there's a miniature model of what they believe maybe it looked like. And, and what's amazing about that is, again, this was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world in this day and time. So people came from everywhere to see this temple of the goddess Artemis. It was massive. And today, there, that bottom picture, those are all that's left. Ancient ruins. I wonder, what's going to be left of your kingdom? What will be left? Of what you're striving so hard for. Guys, brothers, sisters, the temples and the kingdoms of this world are temporary. These things are temporary. They are passing. We have got to begin to say, listen, Lord, the things in my life, you've got to get rid of them. It was in Judges chapter 6, there was a man by the name of Gideon that God said to him, Hey Gideon, listen, you've got to get rid of all the worship of Baal and his, 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 his altar and the Asher pole that's even of your dad's and his household. We want you to get rid of it. Now, now Gideon was a little afraid, so he didn't do it during the daytime. He did it when? Do you remember? He went at night, didn't he? And at night, during the night, he, he had his servants help him. And they got rid of the, the Baal and he set up the new altar back to God. In the morning, the whole village shows up and... Knocks on his dad's door and says, bring Gideon out. We've heard that he did this and we're going to kill him. And Gideon's dad says something very interesting in verse 31 of Judges 6. He says, if Baal is actually God, then he can fight for himself. He says, if this God's so real that you and I worship, then let's let him prove it. He reminds us, listen guys, that the one true God, He doesn't need our protecting or defending. There is a true God who can do what no one else can do. There's a true God today that can set you free, that can change your heart and your life and your motives. Listen, this God is great and mighty. Look what happens here thirdly. The one true God offered His own sacrifice. Interestingly, the text records that Artemis had sent this Stone out of the sky, right? This great sacred stone, they call it. This meteorite. And they said, listen, this proves and identifies that this goddess Artemis that we all worship is true. But God, He didn't send an animal or He didn't even send a human. Even though He sent prophets and messengers. God didn't simply send a rock from heaven. He sent the rock of ages. He sent the unchanging one, the true Son of God. God did what was ultimately needed that nothing else could satisfy. God sent God. God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to ransom us. And as beautiful and encouraging as that is, doesn't that also realize or reveal to us how serious our condition is? If nothing else would do other than God sending God, does that not say that our sin is pretty serious? Like that we can't do enough to like overcome it. That we can't rescue ourselves, so to speak. God had to do what was demanded and needed most to rescue us. God said, God. He sent His own Son as a remedy, as, as the, the hope of nations. You see, the people at Ephesus have a kind of connection back to the people of Israel. Hosea writes and he tells the people, listen, you guys are God's people, but man, you guys have, like, I mean... 
Y'all become like prostitutes. You all have just gone after all these other gods. And listen, this will be bad enough. But uh, do you guys not remember what God did? He, He brought us out of Egypt, you all. Like He delivered us when there was no hope that we could ever get out. God did that for us. And don't forget, guys, it wasn't like God chose us because we were some big, awesome nation. I mean, remember Abraham? He didn't have anybody. He and his wife Sarah, nobody. And God said, listen, I'll start with them. And now we've turned our back on him? We said we don't want him to be our God? And listen to this, maybe you're here today and you're wondering, like the drummer, like, so what's God going to do with that? Listen to what happens. Verse 16 of Hosea chapter 2. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. God says, listen, in grace, I'm going to restore you. It's not that you and I deserve it. It's not that you and I could be good enough. It's not that we could do enough stuff this week or next week or the rest of our lives. It's about how great and loving God is. It's not about how big your idol is today or how long you've been invested in that idol. It's in fact how great the power of Jesus Christ is to set men and women, boys and girls free. It's His love. It's His power. He says, listen, I'm going to change you guys. I'm going to transform you. Look what He says there. Verse 18, And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. God says, I'm going to take away your enemies. Now, the people of Israel deserve this. No. Do we? No. See, there's this confusion that some people think that God was some different God in the Old Testament, and now He's someone different in the New Testament. No, it's always been based on grace. The people in the Old Testament couldn't keep up the sacrifices. Us in the New Testament, we can't keep it up either. The point is not keeping it up. It's already what Christ has done to submit to that, to allow His sacrifice to be sufficient for you. To quit trying to please God as if He's some idol. You can keep all these things juggling in the air. God is a God of mercy and grace. And you see, it's that that's going to move the hearts of the people. Watch this as we close. Look what he says, verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. He says, you've left me, you've gone your own way, but I've not stopped loving you. I've not given up on you today. I've not forgot about your name today. I mean, I know you've been gone a long way. You've wandered a long way off. God's saying to you today, I've not forgot about you. I've not given up on you. Maybe family has, maybe friends have, maybe others have. I've not given up on you. And he says, listen, I want to let you know I'm going to betroth you. I'm going to bring you back to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy. I'm going to betroth you to me in faithfulness. Not your faithfulness, but mine. That's just how great in God, how awesome He is. There's no idol like that. There's no other God that could ever do that. And look at me, just as close with me. Look at this again, just how gracious and loving God is. And I will have mercy, he says, verse 23 of Hosea 2, on no mercy. He says, listen guys, you haven't been merciful, but I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm going to be kind and gracious to you. Look what he says here again. You'd say, well, wait, listen again. My idols have been too many, too long. No, God says, I'm still going to have mercy on you. I'm going to be gracious to you even though you don't deserve it because that's just who I am and that's how I love you. That's the kind of father I am. And he says, I will say to not my people, you are my people. You're my people. 
You may not feel like God's people today, but today if you were in Christ and you are confessing His name and calling Him your Lord and Savior, and your life is one of genuine repentance, saying, God, I am trusting in Christ and no one else. Listen, He's saying, listen guys, I want you to know, you're my people. Those idols are not your gods today. The things that you've been after for so many years or for so long, those are not your gods. They will never satisfy. And God doesn't sit on the porch and say, well, you made your bed, lay in it. No, He says, listen, my people, come back to me. But I know you won't. I know you can't. So I call my boy to come. To live a sinless life. That when it came time on that cross, he could die. Not for his sins, but for the sins of the people that turned their back on me and said, God, I don't want you. I don't desire you. He died. Taking your sin, standing before God as if he lived your life, that by the grace and the free gift of God, you could stand before God today as if you've lived Jesus' life. That is the great grace. That is the righteousness that's been given to you in Christ. And so I want to ask you today, if God's mercy is doing a work in your heart, if God, the fact that He's today ushering and calling you, even though you feel dirty and unclean, He's saying, I I love you. I cleanse you. I wash you. I'm calling you, my people. Could we not just stand today and say, we shall say, you are my God. The idols are no longer my gods. They can never satisfy. They'll never bring what we've looked for. There's no one that can do this other than God. You are my God. Is that the cry of your heart today? When the gospel, the good news of Jesus confronts our idols, you may be there wondering, man, I really want to, but I'm just not sure I can give this up. I know of nothing else to motivate and call you than the gracious and free gifts of God. His love. His forgiveness of all of your sins. His cleansing. His death for you. That you could be forgiven. That you could be restored. That you could have hope. Not only in this life, guys. This is about the life to come. This is about forever and forever. God sent His Son for you. Have you received it? Do the idols in your life reflect it? I call you today to the one true God. Call out to Him as your Father and your God. Would you pray with me, Father, in the name of Christ? Lord, when I look at my own life and think about the many idols and motives that are there, not only throughout my life, but even now, God, I have... I I confess, God, um, I know there, there are desires in my heart and in my life for other things other than you. That's just, just being honest, God. There's no pretending before you. Um, you know me full well. I, I can fool these people. I can, I can put the preacher card on, but the reality is, God, I'm just like them. I am in desperate need of you today. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you're a God that we don't have to perform for. Like It's not like how much did I read this week? Did I tell enough people about Jesus? Did I give enough money? Have I not said cuss words? Have I not looked at somebody lustfully? Have I... It's not about this big to-do list. It's already about the list that we can never meet that your son's already done. And so, Lord, I just, I just pray today that grace would overwhelm us. That forgiveness, because when we hear this message, Lord, I, if it penetrates, I pray it penetrates hearts here like it has mine. 
And I think, man, God, I'm a scoundrel. Why would you ever love me? Why would you ever forgive somebody like me? And all I can say is, that's my God. He's a lover of the unlovable. He's a forgiver of those who think they've done unforgivable things. He's kind and gracious when we do not deserve it. He is abundant and merciful. His love never ends. God, there's no God that can ever, ever satisfy other than you. All others are just posers. And in the end, Lord God, we'll soon find, if we do not repent and cry out to you, that we've just been deceived riding in Cinderella's carriage. And one day we'll find out it was just simply a pumpkin. We were trying to fool everyone else, but we never fooled you. God, today I cry out to you, please let the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his love and his forgiveness that we've never deserved, let that be what calls people forth today. Not a call to be perfect, not a call that we're good enough, just the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom we indeed are the chief. Let the love and grace of God do what only you can do. Change hearts like you've changed minds and many others. I hope and pray this in the name of Jesus, Lord. Amen. I go to a Southern Baptist church in Smith Grove as well, so I'm not going to interfere with dinner time. I know how important that is as well, too. So, um, I did graduate in 1998, um, so I'll be having my 20-year reunion next, next year. Um, but I, like a lot of teenagers when I was young, um, was raised in a divorced family, um, had to witness some things that I wish no one would ever have to witness as a child. Um, so my sister and I were uh, given the opportunity from my grandparents um, to go to Onita Baptist Institute. We really had no clue what we were getting ready to endure, but um, my dad drove us down in the hills of Onita, Kentucky. And when I say hills, I'm from eastern Kentucky, but when you get to Onita, it's literally mountains. And out of nowhere is this little uh, campus, um, a beautiful campus. Um, but there are children there for many, many walks of life, um, similar to mine, lots of international students, um, and I attended four years there along with my sister, and I have to say that first year was a, it was a struggle. Being away from my family, we lived on campus. I went home maybe once a month. Um, other kids there lived there all year round. Um, they had summer school, but you lived there on the campus, you slept with three other girls in your dorm room just as if you were in college. Um, we had to wake up first thing in the morning, have our beds made, room was clean, you had to get it inspected um, before you even went to class. We had sermon every single day for four years. And, you know, like a lot of other children that go there, you know, church wasn't part of my life before Onita. So I knew I was missing something constant in my life. I just didn't have the means to have someone speak to God about everything. So um, I was very fortunate within my first year there. I, t I attended a Baptist Student Union. That you I think they still call it BSU there. Um, but we would sing worship songs and 
were introduced to so many wonderful people that work there on the campus, including your brother-in-law, which I remember. So um, I remember that there was one evening we were singing our songs right there on the patio, and God just had just rushed over me, and I got saved, and it was the best moment in my life. Um, and again, I'm, I'm human, and I still struggle, but to say I've got you know a family. I've been married for 13 years, and have three beautiful children. And when you're at Onita, you don't realize that all the food that we eat and the reason that a lot of children can afford to get there because a lot of children can't. They have, you know, home lives that you just can't imagine and they really, really probably need to be there. But it's because of churches like this, churches like the one that I attend that I had no idea even gave to Onita that you realize, wow, this is it's because of you all and the churches in Kentucky and surrounding areas, I'm sure, that give to that um, campus. So I want to say I appreciate it, too, as well. And um, Onita's just been great. The children that come from there, we still have reunions every year and meet up with each other, um, about 50 of us. So we have wonderful relationships, and it prepared me for, I did four years in military in the Marine Corps as well, so... It was a piece of cake for me because I kind of lived that lifestyle in high school. But um, I just wanted to say thank you and thank you for giving to Anita because it means a lot to me as well. Thank you very much, Candace. We really appreciate you coming and sharing with us today. That concludes our service for today. If you would like to give to